So, this picture is uh, a picture of uh, Jean Van Veldhuizen with uh, Phil Donahue, and um, and is that Keith Green? So for those of you who weren't here and Pastor Jacobson was here, this joke is wasted on you, especially if you don't remember who Phil Donahue is. <laughs> Pastor Lloyd would be mistaken for Phil Donahue on many occasions. And then the story occurred where somebody that Pastor Jacobson knew got on an airplane and saw Phil Donahue and went up to him and said, Pastor Jacobson. <laughs> this is a true story. And he said... Lady, I don't know who that is. I'm Phil Donahue. And she said, oh, never, never mind. <laughs> it's not Keith Green. That's my brother, Rich, who snuck in the back. Would you please wave, brother Rich and Sharon? Yeah. It is an absolute honor to be here. When Steve called and asked me, I was not just honored, I was shocked, really to be invited back, and so I'm just really blessed to be here with you, and just all sorts of emotions that I've been feeling here the last couple of days. Our, my history with Bethel, believe it or not, my first exposure to Bethel goes back about 50 years, which is something normally old guys say. So I don't know how that, that works out, but it was, it was Rich who found the, the church. How did that happen? How did you meet Pastor Lloyd? Why is it? Okay, so it's a long, convoluted story. But the upshot is, what, 72-ish, 71? Yeah, so uh, that's when I first, and over on the church on Eigelhart, and, and that's when I first was exposed to, to Bethel. Rich and Sharon were, were married by uh, Pastor Jacobson, as Becky and I were. Uh, that was in 73 for you guys, and then it was off to Cloquet. And then after that, my, our brother Robert, our sister Donna, when they were, yep, you guys knew them, late 70s, early 80s. Whenever I would come down to visit them for the weekend, I would come to church uh, at the old building in Eigelhart, and I knew that when I came to the Twin Cities that it would be automatic, that this was going to be my home church. There was just no, no need to church shop. This was going to be the place. And Pastor Jacobson was here at that time, and what a, what a joyous time. I learned he was really my first mentor in ministry. I learned so much from him, how to, how to read the Word of God and interpret it and teach it. Uh, he put a fire in me for evangelism and missions. And then when Pastor Jim came, a completely different set of skills that he taught me about leadership and how to relate to the church and administrative stuff that oftentimes pastors are really crippled in. And he did so well with that. I learned from him on that. And, you know, Bethel really in those days was known for being a sending church. Steve, you've mentioned this a few times already. And I remember Pastor Jacobson saying, we don't measure the size of this church on the attendance on Sunday mornings. We don't measure it on how many people have come in. We measure it on how, how many people we've sent out. And Rich and I are two of those that were raised up here, sent out. Steve was one of those raised up here. He came back. Uh, Jim, you were in a lot of ways raised up here and sent out and came back. We all have a way of coming back. And so here we are. It's just a And so Steve, it was uh, the summer of 1974 
that at that time, Rich and Sharon were on staff with Steve's dad, Virgil, in Cloquet, and I went up to, I visited my brothers and sisters a lot, I guess, and went up to visit Rich and Sharon one summer, and that's when I met Steve in, the, in 74. We romped around in the woods of Cloquet, got reconnected both at Bethel College, Bethel University now, and, and here when I moved to the Twin Cities in, uh, in 83. And so we, and so here's my Steve story, uh, his input in my life. I don't know if you recall this, but it was probably 30 years ago, we had a conversation about whether or not I should go back to seminary. And I just felt like, oh, two years, three years of my life, that's just so long to do that. I don't know if I can, I can do that. And Steve's advice was it'll go by fast, a small portion compared to your whole life and eternity. And, and it was 30 years ago, and yeah, it did go by fast. So it just seems like a blip now. It's a lot of your life in those days. Now it's not so much, but, uh, but thank you for that encouragement. That was a conversation that I, I remember. Uh, we have so many memories here that, that go beyond ministry. Uh, Becky and I met right back here in the room. It was called the music room at that time. Uh, it's where the singles met. Joe, the singles group met. Let me clarify. Joe Walsh was our leader. It's not like we didn't we couldn't date online in those days. We had to we had to go to the music room. And that's where the choir met. Good to see the Ernst here, Kathy. Those were great days when there was always like two tenors uh, that we had to carry the group with. And good to see you here. And so Becky and I met there. We were we like Steve said it was. Well, it was 35 years ago today that we stood up here and did our, our rehearsal di uh, for our wedding, and our kids were dedicated on this platform. I was ordained on this platform 20 years ago, so just a lot of rich memories. And you guys sent us out in November of 1999. We went to Breckenridge, had eight really rich years there at our sister church, and uh, we have, um, since then, we... We went to uh, Howard Lake, where we were called to work on a church that was struggling. And Bob Forseth was the, the, uh, the interim pastor there. So that gave me the opportunity to work with one of our former pastors here, but not till we got to Howard Lake. Hey, could we just do a fun exercise here, a little survey? Who is, uh, if you were part of, the, of Bethel today, could you just please stand? I want to know who I'm, who I'm talking to here. You, you, this is your home church right now, so you're not back visiting. Would you please stand? I want to see what... So we've got some folks who are sitting that are either uh, visiting here today or uh, were former members. Okay, thank you very much. Now, you, wait, wait, wait. You stay standing if you were here when Pastor Jim was here, and stand up if you were sitting and you were here when Pastor Jim was here, Okay. Was that confusing? If Pastor Jim was your pastor, please stand. If he was not, you can go ahead and sit down. Okay. What about Pastor Jacobson? Stay standing if he was your pastor. Okay, these, these are my old peeps. If you were here when Bob Forsyth was here, stay standing. The crowd is thinning. Okay. Ellen Jepson. 
Okay, so there's where it ends. All right. We, Becky also has, can I, Becky's grandmother was a good friend of Helen's and was at her house uh, many times as a, as a child. What, what did you, how did you say it on the way over? You said you described going to your house as just a lot of fun. A lot of fun, okay. All right, well, uh, I, we better get out of here. We can, uh, we can dissolve this picture. Oh, look at that, it works. Um, okay. Would you pray with me before we look into the Word of God this morning? Father, I believe with all my heart that you've given me a word here for today, and I sure don't want to mess it up. Lord, I want to be a true carrier of this message to this church at this point in time. This particular collection of people, I'm convinced, will never be together like this in this occasion ever again. And we will, some of us may not be reunited until we're on the other side. And so, Lord, there's something that I, I believe that you want declared in this place. And, and, Lord, I feel so small to be the one to declare that. Lord, without your anointing, this is going to be a waste of time. So, Lord, anoint my voice, I ask. Lord, I ask that you will anoint every ear, open every heart. May our minds explode with the, with the idea of what, what you've called us to do and to be. Pray it in Jesus' name. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles or your phone or whatever you're using these days to Matthew chapter 28... So 90 years, technically 92 years, we, we celebrate. You know, some, some church anniversaries are little more than a celebration of survival. You know, you see these little country churches, and they're celebrating 150 years, and there's, you know, there's 15 people at the celebration, but thank God they made it to that. They survived. And so when Steve asked me, what do we, you know, to, to come, I, and I asked him, so what's, what are we specifically celebrating? He said, we're celebrating God's faithfulness. And I thought, that's something that I can work with. It's very scriptural. The psalmist would sometimes take a whole psalm to even recount Israel's history and, and thank God for God's faithfulness. And it was, a, it was a song they would sing, God's faithfulness. And it's a great time to look back and, and give God thanks for what he's done, not just in survivability, but we've... We've really done so much in the kingdom, and we thank God for that. And God has done so much in this place and through us. That is, that's, that's reasonable to thank God for that. But I also believe that this should be a time of looking forward. So in other words, this is, this is a glance in the rearview mirror, right? This is, you know, and a, a look in the rearview mirror should only be a glance. If you stare at it, you'll go in the ditch. You need to keep looking through the windshield of where we're going. But it's good to know, to look in the rearview mirror to say, well, thank God I missed that pothole. And we've done some of that, I think. And God has kept us moving forward. But this, in the scope of eternity, what we're doing this weekend is a glance in the rearview mirror. This is also an opportunity to look forward. Where are we going from here? To ask ourselves the question, is this time to review the old vision and to do something new or 
is this time to revive the old vision and make that happen? What, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be able to tell you what you all need to do. I've been out of touch with the daily life of this church for over 20 years now. So I don't know where you guys are at with, with vision. But whatever the case, it's time for us to step back and be reminded of the mission, why we're here. And the difference between vision, uh, vision and mission, very quickly, vision is just how we're seeing the mission in today's context. Vision is seeing what God is seeing for our church at this time. And that, that kind of waxes and wanes depending on what's going on in the, in the culture and in the church and what God is speaking. But the mission, well, I'm here to declare to you today a new mission. Can I do that? It'd be embarrassing to stop me now. But it turns out that the new mission is the old mission. The new thing is the old thing. The mission doesn't change. The vision may change as we reinterpret the, the, the current expression of that mission, but the, the mission doesn't change. And it's easy for us as we're busy serving God and getting the church services ready and the, and the various things that we've volunteered for, and we're working so hard for this, sometimes it's easy for us to forget why we're here. What brought us here in the first place? And we can get so far removed from our central purpose without even realizing it as we're dealing with all the details of ministry life and church life that the mission can lose focus. A number of years ago, when our kids were still at home, we took a vacation out to the Black Hills of South Dakota out by Rapid City. Anybody been out there? You like that out there? It's kind of, kind of nice, isn't it? Beautiful. It's different, though, from, from around here. Just the landscape is different. You're driving along these, these country roads, and you come to a place where you're driving through a fence. Like, there's, there's no gate there. It's, it's left open, but there's a thing called a cattle guard. You know what a cattle guard is? That's where they've dug this dig pit, and they've put... There's like a grate over at bar, so you can drive over it, but the, the cattle will, if they step on it, they will they'll, they'll fall, they'll fall into it, so they can't get across. So you can leave the gate open, and you drive through this, and next thing you realize, you, you're, you're driving on a country road through hundreds of acres of what is apparently pasture, and you're driving through a herd of bison, and there's prairie dogs running around, and, and they have ghost towns out there in South Dakota. And so we were on this vacation. We thought, let's go find one of these ghost towns. It was a low-budget vacation, and there wouldn't be anybody there to collect our money. So we thought, let's go find this. So we got in the car, and we started driving. And we drove, and we drove. We couldn't find what it said in the brochure. We couldn't find the ghost town. It was truly a ghost town. It was invisible. We were not able to locate it, and we were on roads that were not labeled, they were not on the map. We were what you call lost. But it was okay because we're on vacation. We weren't in a hurry to get anywhere or, or be anywhere, and so we're driving along. And as we're driving down this little dirt road in I have no idea where, we see this cluster of trees on the right-hand side of the road and a cluster of trees on the other side of the road. So I'm looking, and suddenly I see a bear come out of the cluster of trees, cross the road, and go into the other. And I said, hey, everybody, look. Even though we didn't find a ghost town, at least we got to see a bear. 
that's fun. And we'd been to, to bear country out there where you can drive through the, you know, the bears are crawling around your car and, and, and you can drive through them. I'm like, this is, this is like bear country, only it's free. And so as we're driving, we look and here comes another bear crossing the road. I'm like, wow, two bears. I mean, this is, this is like bear country. We keep driving and then another bear. And, you know, it's, I've seen a mama bear with, you know, her three cubs before, but these cubs were looking like they were large enough they should have left the den. And I thought, well, they're South Dakota bears. Maybe, they, maybe they're more family-oriented. I don't know how they do it out here, but we, we, we kept driving closer. Now Becky's getting nervous. I don't know if we should go down there. I said, just keep your windows up. It's like bear country. It'll be fine. So we got down there between the two clusters of trees, and I was hoping to get a glimpse of them. And I looked to the left, and there they were. We got a close-up look. And what, what we learned that day is how much black Angus beef looks like cows from a distance. <laughs> See, the, the, the landscape that we were in, the context said bears. Because we were in the middle. I mean, cows don't normally cross the road where we live, right? They just, bears do that. Had we driven by a pasture that was enclosed in a fence and we would have seen bears off in a distance, the context would have told us and our perception would have told us, oh, look, there's some black moo cows. The context, you know, and the, our perception of that didn't match up with what reality was. And what I'm trying to tell you is that in the landscape of church busyness, in, in, the, in the context of the calendar that gets so full sometimes, we can become so distant from our purpose that it gets a little blurred and our perception of it can get lost. And I believe that God has laid a, a word on my heart today to bring that into focus today. So the text that I have is about as familiar as they get. Matthew 28, starting in verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples just before he ascended, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is the commission that Jesus gave to the disciples. It's pretty great. So we call it the Great Commission. And it is central to the mission of the church, any church, every church. This is our central mission, yet it's so easy for us to get sidetracked and distracted by programs and activities and, and other stuff that we can get so far away from the purpose of why we're even here that, that the landscape, the context of church life makes that purpose a little bit cloudy. And so what I want to invite you to do is take a fresh look today at an old command. And so we're going to break it down. I want to point out four words to you in, in these verses that I want to draw attention to. And the first is the word go. Most translations, including the one that I just read from, translate this as if it were an imperative. Go, you, go, get going. But it's not a command in the original. It's literally going, as you go, while going. Or metaphorically, we could say, as you live life, make disciples. The issue is not about getting people going. You're already going. You hear you got up 
from out of bed and you're here in church, you're, you're going, you're living life. And Jesus is saying, as you do that, as you live your life, make disciples, influence everyone you can. Make disciples. Now, this is the only, that's the second one I want to focus on today. Should I use my PowerPoint? I don't know. Is this going to be, oh, it's already up there. Look at you. You're on it. I'll take over from here. Thank you very much. Make disciples is the only command in this verse. All of the other verbs that you see here describe what it is to make disciples, which I think speaks to us because all the activities that we do should support making disciples. If we have an activity that's peripheral, that is not focused on that, if it cannot support that ministry, we need to question it because everything that we should be doing as a church should point back to this. Everything else is just a tool to get it done. Here's what happened. When, when, when you all sent me out to Breckenridge and I became a senior pastor and I began to look at what I was doing in ministry, I realized that a lot of my effort as a pastor was spent in having really good, impactful Sunday morning church worship services. So we wanted to have good music that, that drew people in and and was, I mean, that it was aesthetically pleasing, and it was quality, and it was, it was rich, it supported the gospel, and I wanted to make sure that the preaching was good, and, and that, I, you know, it, it was important that I put together a word that made sense, and, and it was uh, not entertaining, but at least amusing from time to time. I had, I had no one to laugh at my jokes quite as well as Andrew, but I, that was my goal. Want to make sure that we had good fellowship, that when guests came in the door, that we processed them efficiently and we followed up with that, that we had good children's ministry. Everything that, uh, the bulk of what I was doing was focused on this event, the Sunday event, or as I came to call it a little bit, maybe sarcastically, the Sunday show. And that was my, a criticism of myself because that's what I was putting my effort into. But I want to point out something to you today that's, it's just brand new in this version of the Bible. It doesn't say, go into the world and have great church services. Now, this, is just, this is just brand new. Go into the world and make disciples is what it says. So I had spent so much time on the Sunday event. There wasn't any time for discipleship the way Jesus modeled it where he took 12 guys and he poured into those guys. And they poured into other guys who poured into other guys who poured into enough guys that a bunch of you guys are here now because of that. Somebody took the time to do that. And I think in many churches, if you look at their programming and their priorities, and by that I mean their church calendar, their budget, their checkbook, where, where, their, where their resources are going, I think you'll see the same mistake. The worship service becomes the measure of church success. Was the worship good? Was the preaching moving? Did we feel the presence of God in the service? Now, none of those things are bad things, right? Those are good things. I, you know, I, I, don't, I like good music as much as the next guy. And, and I hope that the preaching moves you in, in the right direction. And... I want to feel the presence of God as much, but that's not the mission. Those support the mission, but the mission is not having good church services. 
The main thing is not that we enjoyed the service. That's not what we're here for. The main thing is that people are receiving new life in Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and that they're being discipled into the image of Christ. That is why we are here. That is why we exist. Now, about the command, make disciples. You know, actually, the word make is not in the Greek. Oh, I said I'd take over, and then I, I didn't do it. Oh, now I don't, have no idea where I'm at. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. There's a lot of fun to put together, but it doesn't make sense to me. So maybe, maybe it'll make sense to you. About the command, make disciples, the word make is not in the Greek, so I've, I've taken it out of there. There's just one word, to disciple. And that roughly translates to train someone. Not just teach, but to train them. And this should be a relief to us, because we can't make anybody anything. I'm going to make a disciple out of you. Stand back, here it goes. You can't. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us anything. The next two verbs here, which I've already underlined, baptizing and teaching. Jesus left us with a brief definition. This is not exhaustive. But when it comes to discipleship, as Jesus' last words, he said, here's how you disciple them. You baptize them and you teach them. And so we've got four verbs in here in, this, in, this, in this, these verses. The only command is to make disciples. The others support that. And that's what I'm saying, that there's a lot of verbs in the church right now, but every one of them ought to support making disciples. There's a lot of activities. They should support that. And I think we see it right here in these verses. So there's, there's two, these two words, baptizing and teaching, is what I want to talk to you about. Now, if, if I were asked for a definition of making disciples, and I got two verbs to describe it, I don't know if baptism would be on the top. Would it be on the top of your list of disciples? If you were Baptist, it would be. But... You know, I don't, why did Jesus choose this? Well, it's not the actual act of immersion that is important. It's what it symbolizes, is what he was getting at. It symbolizes, baptism does, a new life. The washing of sins and being raised with Christ, it, it symbolizes so many things. The illustration that Jesus used to describe this new life when he talked to Nicodemus in John 3 he said, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, if you want to even see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You must have a spiritual birth. The goal of evangelism, the goal of sharing the gospel, is not to get someone to pray the sinner's prayer. The goal is new birth. Which, in my experience, and also uh, with, with Billy Graham's statistics, I'm going to guess about one out of ten people who we lead through that prayer are actually born again. The others just recite I've seen people recite it, like, will that help me? Okay, well, I've done the Hail Marys and the, and the, the, the other, the Our Fathers. I'll do that one, too, if that will help me. The prayer, you know, Jesus never said, I, I'm, I'm starting to feel like preaching. Is that Okay. Okay. You know, Jesus didn't say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so ask me into your heart. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent and believe. We must lead people into a biblical response to the gospel. 
and not something that's based on an evangelical tradition. The prayer that, we, that I was taught to lead people through, it's not even in the Bible. And yet, it's sort of become like an evangelical mantra. And so, it, for, for evangelicals, it's, it's our version of infant baptism. We, we see these, our, our, our brothers and sisters in the mainline churches, who, who they baptize their infants, and so they're going to heaven. We say, no, they're not. No, they need to recite the sinner's prayer when they're five years old, and then they're going to heaven. I'm not sure I, I see a whole lot of difference. Jesus said, you must be born again. And he compared spiritual birth to physical birth. That's, that's the metaphor he used. Let's not gloss over that. Being born the first time as a human being is pretty life-changing. It's, it's pretty radical. You got this little guy. Think about it. You got this little guy. He's swimming around in his mother's womb. It's like this organic jacuzzi. It's wonderful. The water is 98.6 degrees all the time. He can hear his mother's heart beating. That's soothing. He can hear his mother talking and singing songs. And, and it's just it's just the but, but it's muffled just enough so it's just quiet, it's just soothing, and he's, he's being fed through a tube. I mean, he doesn't have to do anything. Everything is taken care of. And then the day comes. Mommy isn't humming quietly to herself anymore. She's screaming. That's alarming. And then he's, he's thrust on this little tube at 10 centimeters, and if it wasn't for the fact that his skull hasn't grown together, he would die because his head is getting squished through this thing. And he's thrust out into this environment that's very, very cold. And there's no water to breathe. He's like, what are you trying to do to me? And they're sucking stuff out of his lungs. And then they come at him with his scissors. He's like, what are you trying to do? They start cutting the cord. And he's like, that's how I eat. Are you trying to kill me here? And he's, no wonder he's crying. And that's if it goes well. They call this the miracle of birth. <laughs> Friends, that, that's the illustration that Jesus used to say, this needs to happen to you in a spiritual sense if you want to get into the kingdom of God. There is some sort of crisis moment. It's a little bit traumatic when we realize our sinful condition and the process that we have to go through and the, and the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. It's... It's, it's like a noticeable thing that happens. And yet, I have seen so many professions of faith, and you have too, that didn't last. Here's, here's what I was taught in evangelism back in the mid-'80s. I was taught you throw the gospel at them like a sales pitch. We were literally taught sales techniques to convince them that the gospel was true. And then we were, we were literally told, you've got to close the deal. Just like a salesman, don't let them get away without deciding one way or the other. And, and, and they were only, it, was, it was a little bit manipulative as I look back. You've got to get them to that part of the booklet where they recite the prayer. You've got to get them to say that. Because bless God, 
If anyone confesses and believes in their heart, they're saved. And so we, we got them to, to, to say that, that prayer, and then we were taught, now it's important to make an appointment with them immediately for a week later to check back to make sure that, that their commitment took. We called that follow-up. You know, follow-up isn't in the Bible either. Discipleship is. Follow-up to figure out if, if a commitment took is, remember, we're talking about a new birth. What obstetrician, now think about it, would make an appointment with the mother who had just given birth a week later to see if the birth took? <laughs> Ma'am, I, I, you know, I just want you to understand what happened to you in, the, in that room. I know there was a lot of nurses running around. I want, I, I, do you understand that you had a baby? Do you, do you really get the commitment of being a mother here? Do, do, do you get that? It's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous notion. But, but we, we, would, we had to remind, and we ended up going through the gospel again. Oh, you don't get, okay, let me, let me. And after a while, I thought, what am I doing wrong? What are, what are we doing wrong? It's because we were pushing for a sales pitch instead of, so now, now when somebody wants to respond to the gospel, sometimes I'll say, you go home and you seek God then. You pray until the Holy Spirit makes you a new person. Instead of having a bunch of people line up like a trip to the DMV where you, you have them say a prayer and they sign out a card and give them keys to the church. And I don't know what all, but we, we rush the process. Let God do it. Have, take our hands off of it. You know, somebody who's really been born again, you don't need to make an appointment to tell them that, by the way, you, you got born again. You can't, you can't shut them up. It reminds me of the, of the story of the girl who, who wanted to become a Christian. But she was told, well, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to, you know, you need to tell people about your faith. You need to share the gospel with people. You need to give your testimony, tell what's happening. She said, I can't. I don't think I can do that. She went and had made an appointment with her pastor, and she said, I, I really want to be a Christian, but I don't want to talk about my, I don't think I can talk about my faith. That's just not where I, I don't think I can do that. I don't want to do that. And he said, I tell you what, for you, we'll make an exception. You don't have to tell anybody. She's like, really? He's like, absolutely. And she was so excited, she ran home. She ran upstairs to her bedroom, and she began to call out to God, and she repented of her sins. And she invited the Holy Spirit to make her brand new. And she made a vow of obedience to follow Jesus all her life. And as she was seeking God, the Holy Spirit came into the room and she was dramatically born again. And she knew in a moment that her sins had been forgiven and that the joy of the Lord rose up within her. And she felt a peace that she had never felt before and a confidence that the Spirit of God was testifying to her spirit that she was one of God's children. And so she was so excited, she ran down to her family, and she said, I've just become a Christian, and I don't even need to tell anybody. <laughs> you don't need to tell people if they've gotten born again. You can't shut them up. Jesus said, go and baptize them. And baptism is an inconvenient symbol, right? It's inconvenient because you got to slam them under the water. They get all wet. It's really inconvenient when the water's cold. It's super inconvenient. And their hair is dripping, and they've got to, they I, I tell people, bring your fluffiest beach towel. 
because you're going to need to absorb a lot of water, and, and they got to change clothes. It's really inconvenient to be baptized. Well, being born again is inconvenient to our flesh. It's inconvenient to our personal plans. It changes everything, and that's the symbol of baptism is of a life changing. It's a transformational encounter with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. That's what it symbolizes. So it symbolizes a new birth, a spiritual birth. Baptism also symbolizes a spiritual bath. So it's a birth and a bath. It symbolizes the washing of sins. Let's never forget the good news of Jesus Christ is only good because it answers some bad news. The bad news is that we are all sinners having fallen short of God's standard. And we are in the crosshairs of God's wrath. We are on the way to eternal damnation because of our own wrongdoing against the Lord. That's bad news. The gospel is so good because it responds to that bad news. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides a way out of that. He went to the cross in our place. Our sin was transferred onto him, and his blood was presented to the Father as full payment for the crimes that we had committed. He is literally a ransom for us. Where we were kidnapped into Satan's kingdom, Jesus Christ is the ransom. Not with money, he didn't buy us back, but with his own life. He was our ransom. That is good news. That would, y'all, it's good. Hello. I, I know you've heard it before, but I, tell, I just told my church recently, you're going to hear it every Sunday. May we never become stale about that reality. May there not be a day that goes by where you're not moved in your heart by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection to breathe life into us. Let's never forget that. And it is the answer to sin. Let's, church, listen, let's never gloss over sin to avoid offending people. Now, don't you go around offending people just because you're an offensive person, but the gospel is offensive to our flesh. Just don't avoid that by trying to gloss over sin. These gospels that, that begin with a man-centered approach, you're an awesome person and God loves you because of that. Now, you're actually an awful person, but God still loves you and he loves you enough to send his son to fix the mess that you put yourself in. I'm not talking about judging people. It turns out that judgment is a terrible evangelistic strategy. We've, we've tried that. It just is alienating. So we're not talking about judgment. I'm talking about, like Paul said in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. We need to tell them the truth. It's the most loving thing that we can do for people. And if we ignore sin, we've just made the gospel irrelevant because the gospel is all about fixing our sin problem. And then we reduce Jesus from the sacrifice for our sins to just a martyr who died an unfortunate death for the things that he preached. Jesus is not a martyr. He was a sacrifice for you and me. That is the gospel. Keep that message. Keep that mission central. Don't lose it while doing ministry. Teaching them. 
is the other thing that I want to point out to you. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here's another mistake that, that, I, that I realized that I was making in my ministry. I acted as if this verse was saying, teach them to understand everything that I taught you. Do you see the difference? As, as somebody who was primarily a, a teacher and not a preacher, per se, where I'm explaining what the Word of God is, I, 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 the gospel for me had kind of devolved into sort of a, a teaching moment only. Teach them to understand everything I taught you. That's not what it says. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Not that, not that Bible study is wrong. I'm a junkie about Bible study. I love to study the Word of God. I'm in it all the time in three different languages, and I, and, I, and I love it. I can't get enough of it. It's not wrong. The problem is when Bible study results only in acquiring spiritual data. When it just becomes biblical information, as if the goal of evangelism, the goal of the mission was to make smarter Christians or better informed Christians. That's, that's not the mission. The mission is to create obedient disciples, people who have Christ-like character. As Paul said in Galatians 4.19, I labor until Christ be formed in you. I labor until Christ. This is, he's writing to a group of Christians, but Paul was still laboring until Christ be formed in them. It's a whole lot more than just responding to an altar call and getting a decision card and going home. The goal is not to understand what Jesus taught, but to obey what he commanded. What he commanded, these are not suggestions or recommendations or good advice. These are commands. Jesus thinks he can tell us what to do. And these commands are not the typical commands that we see in so many churches. Do this, don't do that. It's about, you know, what kind of entertainment or you can do. It's, it's not about that. First John says that his commands are not burdensome. If you look at the red letters of Jesus, and there's 50-some statements that he made that are imperatives, that are commands. They're things like, love God. Love your neighbor. Pray. Give to the poor. Those are the types of things that Jesus instructed us to do. And so discipleship, then, is just training someone how to obey those commands. Let me show you how to do that. Not just teach you to understand it, but here's how you can do those things. I want to help you on, on the way and, and do that. And so discipleship is a whole lot more like coaching and training than it is just teaching. Now, when I was a kid, my dad used to give me a lot of commands, and he would uh, go off to work in the summer, and he, when, I, when he got home from work, he would check to see if I had done them. And suppose he told me one morning, I want you to mow the lawn, and he goes off to work. And he comes home, and there's the lawn still unmowed. Now, there's a few people in this room, primarily my brother, who know, would know what kind of reaction that we would get out of dad for not doing what he asked. But suppose I told my dad in that moment, I said, you know, dad, that's a really important command that you gave me. I love it. It's 
It's powerful. It is, it's rich. I just, it's, it's, I, it just, I memorized it. Mow the lawn. <sighs> that's good. That, that, that's good. You know, and our, our ancestors, our, our forefathers were German. I thought it would really be helpful to catch the heart of what you were trying to tell me. I studied it in German. <laughs> Just to get the feel for where we're coming at with this. And, and so I've been studying, you know, how short it should be cut and, you know, if it's different in the shade. And I had some friends over and we had a discussion about mowing the lawn. You know, whether it should go diagonally or make a box. And we, we've had some awesome insights about it. We even sang a song about it. <laughs> it only takes a spark plug to get a mower going. And soon all grass around is shortened by my mowing. Everybody sing. No, you don't need to sing. It's a ridiculous illustration, of course, but I wanted you to laugh at ourselves just a little bit because that seems seemed to be healthier than making you feel guilty, which is never my approach. It's not what I want. But I wanted to point out how easy it is for us to get bogged down into Bible study. We know this book really well. We need to do it. Discipleship is about doing what this says, not just knowing what it says. Let's make that step. Let's never forget that. A disciple is not someone who just says a prayer and learns moral behavior. Now that you've said this prayer, we're going to teach you right and wrong. And it's usually not what's in the red letters. It's what we define, humanly speaking, in our culture, what's right or wrong. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who has been born again, who's been thrust out of the world that they were living in that was seemed comfortable in 98.6 degrees into this whole new environment that at first seems a little traumatic, but once you're used to it, you realize that that was really living. That's true life. And a, a, it's an encounter with the Holy Spirit. A true disciple is someone who grows in that experience who doesn't just recite a prayer and disappears. God help us. A true disciple is someone who's taught how to obey Christ's commands, not out of obligation, but out of love. We obey because we love him. When Becky tells me, would you please take out the trash? I take it out because I love her. I don't say, why don't you just do it yourself? That's not a particularly loving response. We do things for others because we love them, and it's the same for Jesus. It's not because we're trying to earn points or we're afraid of the hammer of God coming down. The hammer of God already came down on Jesus. That judgment is final. We serve him because we love him. We worship him because we love him. You're sitting here right now, I hope, because you love him. Everything that we do should be about that. And Jesus said five times in John 14 and 15, he connected love and obedience. John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will 
obey my commands. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll, you'll feel goosebumps at every service. I hope you do. That's wonderful. But that's not the mission. That's not the purpose. It's to follow him in loving obedience, to do what he says. That, friends, is the mission of the church, of every church, of this church. I want to see this church make it to the next 90 years. Actually, I won't see that. But if we're going to do the next 90 years, we must reproduce disciples the way Jesus commanded us to do it. And so the new thing is the old thing. Whatever vision you're seeing right now, whatever strategies you come up with, whatever programs, it's all wonderful, but it needs to support that one primary purpose to disciple the nations for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, God, even as you have not just preserved this church over many years, but there have been so much mission that has taken place here. Today, we don't celebrate survivability. We celebrate your faithfulness, but we also look forward. And my prayer, God, is that your anointing would be upon the leadership of this church. Lord, that this mission would never be sideswiped by all of the distractions that are out there with all of the pandemics and the politics and the polemics of people with powerful personalities. Lord, we want to see your purpose rise above all of that and that we would not be distracted by all of the things that the world tries to bog us down. There's one thing that we are here to do, and that's to see Christ be formed in the people that we love and we share the gospel with. Lord, may Christ be formed, I pray, in Jesus' name.